I want to continue the theme of evangelism by taking my text from Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24. But Caleb and my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Notice the first part of this verse. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully. Tonight I want to preach on the subject, reach out with another spirit. The Bible said in Zechariah 4 and 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. When you think of Caleb, you think of a servant of God who had truly loved the Lord. And what a compliment to this man of God, this text I read. How miraculous that the unbelief of the majority of the Israelites did not rub off on this man of God. Their pessimism and their panic never swerved Caleb an inch. Amid all the clamor and the turmoil that doomed the nation of Israel to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Caleb had another spirit. Now, you've seen some people who had, who stood out from the crowd with a different spirit. They were cheerful and not gloomy. They were refreshing and not depressing. And you said, I like to be around that person. They have a wonderful spirit. Now, a person's spirit has to do with his qualities of mind and temper, his mood, and his general disposition. I like to be around someone that's enthusiastic. I like to be around somebody that's exciting. I like to be around people that have an optimistic outlook upon life. I just don't like to be around depressed people. They get on me. They do something to me that I don't like. I like to be around a person who has a different spirit from that. You know, an individual spirit largely determines what direction his life is actually going to take. And I believe that in this hour of crisis and conflict, that a Christian should display another spirit wholly different from the surrounding multitudes that we are cumbered with every day. I feel that a Christian should have a spirit different from a worldly spirit and different from the crowd that we're surrounded with. And we should not expect the world to understand us. We may be persecuted for having the kind of spirit we have, but we should not be puzzled by it. Because the Bible says that a Christian lives by dying. The Bible said he's free by being a slave. The Bible said we're strong by being made weak. And we're exalted by being humble. And we reign by suffering. And we increase by diminishing and we multiply by dividing, and we win by losing, and we hold on by letting go, and we're wise by being foolish. We are marching by the music of a band of another world. Hallelujah. 
And if you'd like to have that kind of a spirit, you can pay the price for it tonight, and you can have that spirit. The Lord requires you to bring an empty vessel and also a clean vessel, and he'll fill you up to the brim to overflowing if you're willing to pay the price. Now, I know there's a lot of people can be Pentecostal today, or at least claim they're Pentecostal, and they don't want to be Church of God Pentecostal. And they can be Pentecostal and be in other churches. But many times the reason is they don't like the reproach that goes along with holiness and the reproach that goes along with the Church of God. It costs a whole lot to come out and out for God and be associated with God's people. It cost Abraham the willingness to yield his only son to God. It cost Esther the risk of her life. It cost Daniel to be cast into the lion's den. It cost Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be put in the fiery furnace. It cost Stephen his life by stoning. It cost Peter a martyr's death. It cost Jesus his life. And it's going to cost you something and me something tonight to be what we ought to be in these last days. A religion that says nothing, a religion that does nothing, and a religion that demands nothing, and a religion that costs nothing, is a religion that's worth absolutely nothing. If you believe it, say amen. I believe that Church of God members, when we get home on from this mount of inspiration, you're going to go right down into a valley of despair if you don't leave with the right motive from this camp meeting. We are a group of people that get enthused to death. And we enjoy it. We go to camp meeting to get enthused for what? If all your inspiration does is shout you at a camp meeting, then it's not going to do you any good when you get back at the house. What you need to do is to have the motive that is God's motive and the concern that is God's concern. And until God's motive becomes our motive and his concern becomes our concern, then we'll do very little about the opportunities that will surround us when we get home. For you see, outreach is in the mind of God from the very beginning. Outreach for souls is in the purpose of God's grace. Matthew 18 and 14, even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I know that God has not found it easy to get his people to keep outreach paramount in his plans. But God is saying, I want you to reach out and capture every lost person that you can capture by the grace of God. Outreach was in the preaching of the prophets. Isaiah 66 and 18. I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations. Isaiah 54 and 2. Enlarge the place of the tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of the habitations. Spare not. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. So outreach was even in the preaching of the prophets. Outreach was in the compassion of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Outreach is in the very command of Jesus Christ. For he said in John 20 and 21, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, so send I you, Jesus said. 
Oh, that we would realize that we need to be on the offense tonight. The world doesn't stand still for the church, nor can we afford to stand still while the world changes all around us and goes to hell. We need to take stock of ourselves tonight and say, what do I have that I might be able to give out? Tonight we may be trying to tell something that we do not have. We might be trying to share something that we do not possess. We might may be trying to give out something that we do not have in our heart. We need to take stock of ourselves and say, am I fulfilling the great commission in my church and winning souls into the kingdom of God before Jesus comes? It's a little difficult to ascertain which part of the great commission of the church is fulfilling today and preachers and churches Denominations joining in protest marches and civil disobedience and political lobbying and advising the United Nations and participating in riots that have destroyed life and property. Is this the role that the church has planned for his church in these last days? We have black power and we have white power and we have poverty programs and women's liberation. And all of these have messages that they feel are right for this age. But the early church had a gospel that was the message that could change the human heart. It could lift the fallen. It could cleanse the harlots. It could sober the alcoholic. It could knit together broken homes. The Bible said in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto everyone that believes. Hallelujah. What's the difference between the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the messages of many institutions today? The difference is we have a message that can change a life. Praise God overnight. It can change a life instantly. Millions of people are regularly visiting psychiatrists today trying to get freedom from a guilt complex when all they need to do is come to Jesus Christ by faith. Praise God. And Jesus can deliver you tonight you know there's no such thing as soul winning without the Holy Ghost a man in Greenville South Carolina made the statement that 95% of his church could be run without the moving of the Holy Spirit thank God it wasn't a church of God preacher but it happened to be a man who was a pastor of a large church that most of his church could be run without the moving of the Holy Ghost. Now a church can do a reformation work without the Holy Spirit and a church can do a uh, cannot do though a regeneration work without the Holy Ghost. A man may be able to win another man to the church or win a man to himself or win a church, uh, win somebody to the church, but if someone is one to Jesus Christ and he has to be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ and saved by the grace of God. This is what we need tonight. Church members winning others to know Jesus as a personal Savior. The majority of our church members have never had the joy of leading a soul to Jesus Christ. The Bible said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Now you get that down flat and plain. He said, God's only glorified when you bear much fruit. So shall ye be, be my disciples. You see, the average church member will not set the world ringing with their brilliancy, but they can sure set heaven ringing with the souls of men crying out to God, saved by the grace of God. Isn't it a strange thing that the thing that's closest to the heart of Jesus Christ, the salvation of souls in this world, isn't it strange that the thing that was closest to Christ is the furthest 
for most church members tonight. That is the winning of souls and friend to show no interest in soul winning, to show no interest in evangelism, to play no active part in carrying the gospel in your church and winning souls is absolutely a sin of disobedience because the Bible said, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. If you believe it, say amen. amen. 1903, at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Two young men with a gleam in their eyes and a vision in their heads wound up an old odd-shaped box and it flew an incredible distance of 120 feet. But their vision made our world a whole lot smaller. Today you can board a jumbo 747 jet that now carries 390 to 400 passengers non-stop halfway around the world. Men have landed on the moon since then. So in a very real sense, Orville and Wilbur Wright turned their world upside down. The first century church, without the aid of television, without the aid of newspapers, without the aid of radio, without the aid of advertising agencies, turned their world upside down. Every city felt the impact of the church, the early church. The Bible said in Acts 17 and 6, these are the men who have turned the world upside down and they have now come here. Hallelujah to God. I would that the world could say that about us. If we have the answer for the ills of the world, we also have a responsibility to tell the world. But you know the problem is that people won't listen today. The problem is not that the people won't listen. The problem is getting church of God people to go out and tell them about Jesus. You know the Bible said in Acts 20 and 20, we have taught you publicly and that from house to house. You know today sinners don't go to church. In most churches today, everybody's a church member. And in many churches, sinners just don't come to church like they used to a long time ago. Maybe a small percentage. But on any given Sunday, you'll see sinners everywhere but in church. You'll see them washing their cars. You'll see them mowing their lawns. You'll see them visiting relatives. You'll see them at the beach. You can see them at the mountains. You'll see them watching television. You can uh, know about them being sound asleep and... uh you say, Brother Ross, that sounds like some church members I got. That's what I mean. Sinners are everywhere but in church. Sinners aren't interested in coming to church. And the Bible doesn't say that when we build a big, beautiful church, He's going to fill it with sinners. The Bible said, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. And unless the fire is burning on the altar, they're not going to be interested in the church. Some of the greatest conversions recorded in the New Testament took place outside the church. By a well in Samaria, a divorcee found Jesus Christ in John 5. On a lonely desert road, a deacon named Philip led the Ethiopia Secretary of State to Jesus Christ in Acts 8. In a home, a Roman centurion was led to Christ and his entire household followed in Acts 10. And in a dirty, rat-infested jail, Paul the Apostle led the runaway slave Onesimus to Jesus Christ. Who said that you had to wait till you get to church to get somebody saved by the grace of God. The early church set the pattern. The Bible said they went everywhere preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament word is awake. The Bible said in Romans 13 and 11 it is high time to awake out of sleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 34 awake to righteousness and sin not. 
Ephesians 5 and 18, Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you life. You see, the New Testament word is to wake up out of our lethargy and our complacency and do something for Jesus Christ and occupy till Jesus returns. For his coming is nigh, even at the door. And what we do, we must do quickly. I read about a farmer the other day waking in the middle of the night when his clock went on a rampage and struck 17 times. He rushed all over the house and woke everybody up shouting, Get up! Get up! It's later than it's ever been before. And I feel like saying that to some Church of God members tonight. They need to snap out of their stupor. They need to come out of their coma. They need to awake from their lethargy. They need to wake up. They need to preach up. They need to pray up. They need to stay up. They need to stay up and preach. But we must never give up. We must never let up. We must never back up. We must never shut up until the kingdom of God is built up in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why we have members today actually walking in our churches with a, an invisible sign across the front that says, Do not disturb me today. And... Uh, the Bible said in Isaiah 64 and 7, And there is none that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, O God. Oh, that church members would stir themselves to be a soul winner. You see, the Bible is a very disturbing book. The Bible is a hammer. The Bible is a fire. The Bible is a sword. My Bible reads that we need to stir up the gift of God that's within us. The Bible said, break up your fallow ground. The Bible said, gird up the loins of your mind. And today we're beset in many places by a spiritual paralysis and a sleeping sickness that's gripped the world. We read our Bibles and, and satanic powers draws us away, a veil over, over the sacred page and we fall asleep. We hear a sermon, yet hearing we don't hear. We sing songs and yet singing we don't really know what we're singing. I feel that we need a revival in the church of God, even in our choir singing, because we're singing so many hypocritical hymns in our churches. The singing of a hymn should be a great experience in the Lord. It, a singing of a hymn could be a prayer. It could be a testimony. It could be a praise to God. It could be an invitation. We need to know what we're singing today. For you see, we need to have a repentance in our singing. We sing sweet hour of prayer and we content ourselves for five to ten minutes a day or less in prayer. We sing onward Christian soldiers and we wait to be drafted into the army of the Lord. We sing all for a thousand tongues and we don't use the one he gave us for the glory of the Lord. We sing there's be showers of blessings and we don't come to church when it's raining. We sing bless me the tie that binds and we get hurt at the least little offense severs our connection with the church. We sing serve the Lord with gladness and we gripe about everything that we have to do. We sing we're marching to Zion and we don't even march to Sunday school. We sing I love to tell the story and you won't even tell it to your next door neighbor. We sing cast thy burden upon the Lord and leave them there and we have nervous breakdowns. We sing all day of rest and gladness and we go everywhere on Sunday but to the house of the Lord. We sing throw out the lifeline and we content ourselves with throwing out the fishing line. It's nothing short of a miracle that God can give us another spirit in the midst of a corrupt age like we're living tonight. 
But as long as our communication lines to heaven can stay open, we shall be able to resist the onrushing tide of wilderness and corruption and live above this world. Praise God with another spirit inside of us. Hallelujah. How must we reach out? We must reach out tonight with a spirit of stability in a time of confusion. We have winds of doctrine all around us tonight. And I like the dogmatism of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 1 and 18, where Paul said, But as God is true, our word towards you was not yea and nay, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached unto among you by us, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. I like that. Praise God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Praise God. If the Bible said it, it's there. Why don't you believe it and accept it and stand on it? And you won't be confused we need a spirit of worship in the midst of irreverence today the world actually is taking sacred things and making a joke of them and we're having a desecration of the Lord's day the government of the United States is making it easy for you to take off on Friday and don't have to come back till Tuesday. Consequently, Sunday is in there somewhere and people care less about going to church. They even talk now about a vacation from church. Church members who actually have a vacation and don't have money enough to go somewhere are staying home and when Sunday comes in their vacation week, they won't even go to God's house because that's their vacation week from church. God help me to have another spirit in an hour like this. Hallelujah. A spirit of worship in a time of irreverence. We need to have a spirit of loyalty in the midst of self-centeredness and lethargy. You know, we've had that mixed multitude ever since Israel left Egypt. And they're in every church. A mixed multitude that just follows for the bread and for the miracles and for all that they can see. They only hang around when the fire's falling. They only run after the fire wherever they see it. And they just come to a church and they're grasshopping members. And they come to a church and they stay there as long as the fire may seem to be burning high. But if it goes down any at all, they'll leave and go somewhere else. God give us a spirit of loyalty in the midst of, of self-centeredness and lethargy and complacency today. I still believe in loyalty to the church. I was raised to be loyal. I was loyal. And I can't have any sympathy with somebody that's disloyal. God help us to love our church and to take a stand for our church. You may not believe what I believe, but bless God, I'm going to make you believe that I believe what I believe. Hallelujah. And I think the world, we're never going to convince the world that what we have is real. The whole world is not going to believe us because the majority is going to hell. But we can sure make the world know that we believe and what we have is real. Praise God. 
So we need a spirit of loyalty and a spirit of stability and a spirit of worship. And we need a spirit of purity in the midst of impurity. Impurity flaunts itself every day at us on television screens and billboards and everywhere you turn in drugstores at the magazine counters. You see impurity, you hear impurity, but God give us another spirit in this impure age. And remember, saints of God, the Bible standard is still the same tonight as it was a thousand years ago. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hallelujah! I'm talking about being honest on your income tax report. Some of you thought I was talking about dresses, didn't you? For the men, it's income tax. God help us to be honest in a time of dishonesty. God help us to have pure thoughts instead of vulgar thoughts. God help us to realize that God's standards are still the same. Blessed are the pure in heart. My Bible said to shun the very appearance of evil. My Bible said don't run with the evil to the same excess of riot. My Bible said give no place to the devil. Does your Bible say that? My Bible had said abstain from all appearance of evil. My Bible said he that committeth sin is of the devil. And he that is born of God doeth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Hallelujah to Jesus. My Bible said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A time of purity. A time of telling the truth in a time when everybody's telling a lie. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He's coming after a church without spot or blemish or any such thing. If you've got spots in your garment, get in God's washing machine. If you got wrinkles in your garment, get on God's ironing board and let Him iron them out. Let Him wash them out. With the detergent, the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. How difficult it is today to live a pure life in the midst of impurity. We need to have a holiness element and principle within us that will absolutely cleanse us from the domination of the carnal nature and imbue within us a supernatural power that will make us a flaming witness for Jesus Christ. I mean, get off your pews and get off your feet and use your souls to win souls and come in the house of God rejoicing, not because you're so Aunt Susie at church and you go to a church where there's a clique and a clan and one little group over here and one little group over there and they're glad to see their family, you know. That's all they come to church for. You ought to get out and win souls to Jesus Christ and come in the church praising God. Praise God. We need a spirit of purity in the midst of impurity. Sin shall not have dominion over you. 
Isn't that wonderful? Sin will not control the pure in heart. We have a principle from God and a power from God that will make us live above sin 24 hours a day. It's a strange thing. I'm not worried. I'm all right. I know where I'm going and I know where I'm at. It's a very strange thing that we, when we get an alcoholic in the altar, we expect that alcoholic to give up his alcohol immediately when he gets saved. And he does when he gets saved. A harlot comes to the altar and immediately we expect them to quit their impure life. When they get saved, they do. It's a strange thing to me that if we believe that God requires a card shark giving up the cards and gambling, an alcoholic to give up his alcohol, and a harlot to give up her vulgar life, that somebody that comes to the altar who has a high temper, who holds grudges, who will not forgive, and help them, they have to progress in it for 49 years. Reminds me, amen. Reminds me of the fellow who, whom I read about, I'm sure it's just a story, but it has a good moral. The old pickpocket that wandered into a rescue mission and came down to make a decision for Christ. And he came back a few weeks later after the decision. And they asked a few months later and they asked him how he was getting along. He said, I'm getting along fine. He said, you know, when I came here to the altar that night, I, I was picking 20 pockets a day. And did you know since I've been here and made a decision for Christ, I'm down to five pockets a day. Isn't it strange that we expect God to cleanse an alcoholic and a harlot and to cleanse somebody like that and we don't believe he has enough power to give you a forgiving spirit and a humble spirit? God give us a spirit of humility in a time of arrogance. We have so many cocky preachers today that I can't hardly stand it. Pardon me. That wasn't in my outline. But I think God ordained me to say it. I want you to know the education you got and the talent that you got came directly from God and I can prove it. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights in whom there is neither variableness neither shadow of turning. Every bit of the money you got in your pocket, the ability to make money, the, the intelligence that you have, the intellect that God blesses you with, the talent that He gives you, the voice He gives you comes from God. He expects you to stay humble. He expects you to stay before him in humility so he can continue to bless you and when you get cocky and when you get arrogant you'll be like Samson you may still be shaken in the church of God but you won't be feeling anything hey amen and the preacher may look pretty standing behind the sacred desk reading like some dry hide from a cemetery. But I want to tell you, unless the power and anointing of God is on the holiness preacher, it'll be of none effect. We got preachers today that don't even know how to make an altar call. 
And I don't like for one to come to my pulpit and preach a whole sermon and then turn around to me and say, now you go make the altar call. My God, anybody can do that. Even the devil can. That's the time when you battle the devil. That's the time when you really need to have the anointing. That's the time when you can tell whether you got it or not. You don't have to go to school to learn how to make an altar call either. Except the school of hard knocks on your knees before God. Hold the horns of the altar and don't turn them loose till you come up with tears in your eyes. Amen. We need a spirit of humility in the midst of arrogance. We have it now creeping into our congregation. Boy, they come in in all kinds of ways. And I'm telling you, if the power were to fall in some of our churches, it'd sure crack a lot of ladies' faces. Did you hear what I said? You sound like you don't know what I'm about to say. Or maybe you do. When you get so proud to look like this world until it hinders you from worshiping God like you ought to worship God, you're backslidden. That's where you are. You're gone. Pride. Pride sent the devil from heaven to this world. And pride, spiritual pride, will sap you and cause all of your power to leak from your soul. I want to go on record here tonight. Bless the name of the Lord. And you can tell him when you get back to your churches. I don't like for anybody to come into the church of God and to try to change the way we're doing things. We're all right the way we are. Amen. I don't want anybody joining my church and trying to tell me how to run it or how to change it in a newfangled way or a modern way. I like the old-fashioned way. Hallelujah to God. The old-time religion is good enough for me. Hallelujah. Now, some of you folks that think that I don't know where I am. I'm pastoring a church with four, over 450 enrolled in my Sunday school. I've got millionaires there. I've got them looking every way you can find them. But I preach it in my pulpit and my church is growing by leaps and bounds until I can't keep up with it right now. Praise God. Because God is helping me to preach holiness. Hallelujah. I have charismatics coming to my church. I have neo-Pentecostals coming to my church. And about every few Sunday nights, I test them out. I preach a sermon on holiness. Then the next Sunday, if I have some of them coming back, I say they're good material, but a lot of them will never come back. They don't intend to follow the old line holiness. They don't intend to follow sanctification. They don't intend to quit what they're doing. But you can't have the real thing and keep calling the world at the same time. Holy Spirit. We need a spirit of gladness in a time of sadness. You know, sadness suffocates the soul. I like Bob Harrington, what he said in Charlotte not too long ago. And by the way, I heard that Bob Harrington, I don't know if it's authentic, or not, 
But I heard the other day that Bob Harrington had received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and spake in tongues. Now you can follow that up. It may be true and it may not. But I understand his old grandmother was a Pentecostal. Well, I knew he talked sort of like one. At least he talked as fast as we do anyway. But he said it's fun being saved. I like what he says. It's fun being saved. He said, I just talk to people about souls wherever I go. He said, I'll pull in at the gas station. I'll talk to a man there at the gas station. If I pull in at Philip 66, I said, see that sign up there, Philip 66? He said, there's 66 books in the Bible. And you better live according to every one of the books from Genesis Revelation. He said, I'll pull in at a guff station. I talked to the man about guff. And I said, see that sign guff up there? He said, you know, there's a great guff between heaven and hell. And you want to cross that guff if you don't get right with the Lord. You know, he pulls in at a Texaco station and he says to the man putting the gas, he said, why trust you so uh, when you trust your car to the man that wears the star? Why don't you trust your soul to the man that made the stars? And he has a sermon there. Then he pulls in at a shell station and the fella sucking a cigarette, putting gas in. He said, fella, see that sign up there that says shell? He said, yes. He said, if that S were to fall off and you were to drop that cigarette in my tank, that's exactly where you're going. <laughs> Boy, it's fun being saved. Amen. We have many, too many sad-faced Church of God members today. They have bulldog faces. You ought to have your face east and west, not north and south. Sadness suffocates the soul. Nobody wants your religion if it's not worth giving away. And the only way you can keep your religion is to give it away and share it with somebody. And if you haven't got enough to share, you can get it tonight. We need to reach out in gladness in the midst of sadness. Then we need to reach out with another spirit. We need to reach out with a spirit of faith in the midst of doubt. You know, those spies came back from, from Canaan land. And the majority said, we saw the giants, we saw the walled cities, and we can't take it. Caleb and Joshua stood there and said, we can take it. You know, the only difference between those fellas was the fact that Caleb and Joshua did not look at the difficulties. They looked at the possibility. And there's so many Church of God people today looking at their problems and your problem is soaring higher than your head and you come to church dejected and depressed because you're looking at, at your difficulties rather than looking at the God who can solve every difficulty. I like what Norman Vincent Peale said. He said he met a man one day who said, Dr. Peale, I'll give you $1,500 in your building fund if you can help me out. He said, help you what? He said, tell me where I can go and relax. Where I'll not even hear anything about the wars and, and nothing about the tension and pollution of the day. I need to get to a place where nobody has any problems. And Dr. Peel was stunned for a moment and then he said, well, come to think of it, I wasn't near a place not too long ago where there was 140,000 people. He said they didn't worry about Vietnam. They didn't worry about the wars across the world. They didn't worry about the hunger. And they didn't worry about the poverty. They didn't worry about anything. He said, in fact, they didn't worry about uh, income tax. They didn't worry about anything. He said because it was up there in the Bronx in the Woodlawn Cemetery and every one of them dead. And the moral he said of the story was the fact that the only people who don't have problems are dead people. And if you're alive, you're going to have problems. There's no way out. You can come down here and get saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost and you'll still have problems. 
No, no way out. This is life. We're here. And Job said, my life is short and full of trouble. We're going to have problems from now on. It's not how many problems you have. It's how you deal with them when they come to you. See, you're going to have problems. And, and Peel said, you know, if you think of it like this, he said, if you, if you have problems, it's a sign of life that you're not dead. And he said, that seems to tell me that if you had a lot of problems, you'd be real alive. And if you've only got five problems, you're far uh, less uh, better off than the fellow that's got ten problems because the fellow that's got ten problems has to be more alive than a fellow that's got five problems. And if you're alive today and you don't have any problems, he said, go off somewhere and pray that God will give you some problems so you can be alive again. So if you have problems tonight, don't look at your difficulties. I like what the old colored lady said. If it's going to happen, worry ain't going to stop it. And if it ain't going to happen, there ain't no use worrying about it. Hallelujah. Oh, let's, let me tell you, friend, there's victory over every problem of your life tonight. Don't look at the giants. Don't look at the wall fences. Don't look at the enemy. Don't look at the circumstances. Don't look at the difficulties. But take on another spirit of faith in the midst of doubt and said, We can conquer in the name of the Lord. You know, one of the strangest, one of the strongest, and one of the subtlest, and one of the sneakiness of all sins is the sin of discouragement. Now, somebody said that's not a sin. Well, hold your horses. I'm going to prove it to you. Romans 14, 23. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. You can't tell me discouragement is a faith. It's in the realm of the doubt and unbelief pattern. 1 John 5, 17, all unrighteousness is sin. That means, can you tell me discouragement is right? He says all unrighteousness is sin. Now we're all prone to be discouraged. Men in the Bible have been discouraged. And one of the reasons why so many never get rid of discouragement is because they never get hold of it. They don't deal with it in the Bible way. They don't deal with it, and it's hard to find a wrench that will reach down and uh, get rid of discouragement. It's hard to get hold of it and find out the source of it. Now, you need to recognize discouragement that you did not get it, first of all, from God. You know what discouragement is? It's a feeling, and don't blame it all on the devil. But it's a feeling inside of you that's triggered by something outside of you. A discouraged person is a person in whom a peculiar form of self has been found out and has been wounded. Wounded self. Usually it gets hold of a person who is sensitive. Sensitive to God, sensitive to himself. Discouragement is a form of self-indulgence. Discouragement is a form of self-petting or self-pampering or it leads to self-pity when you get discouraged. Discouragement is pride and it springs from a secret love of our own excellence. In plain language, we are hurt and we have wounded self and consequently we Get discouraged. But let me tell you, friend, when you and I are discouraged, 
We are not worth anything to anybody. D.L. Moody said, I have never seen God use a discouraged man. And when you're discouraged, you're no good to your husband, you're no good to your wife, you're no good to the pastor, you're no good to the church, you're not good for anything. In the work of the kingdom, discouragement has sapped your victory and you are in self-pity wanting somebody to look at you and bet you and pamper you and pity you and you want everybody to know that you're discouraged. And this is God's message for you tonight. God wants the saints of God to be encouraged in these last days. He doesn't want you to have a spirit of discouragement. He wants you to have a spirit of encouragement. A fellow was asked what his favorite scripture was. And he said, my favorite scripture is, and it came to pass. And the fellow said, well, that's not a complete sentence. That's just the beginning of one. He said, yeah, but it's the most comforting scripture in the Bible. He said, how is that? He said, because I see in there it's comforting because it didn't come to stay, it came to pass. That's why you ought to look at your discouragements. They just came by to pass. I read the story of two frogs. Somehow these two frogs were hopping down the road and they fell over into a cream crop. And the first frog said, I've had it, I've had it. He just sunk to the bottom and drowned. The other old frog, he paddled and he kicked and he churned and he churned and he paddled and he kicked. And after a long time, he was sitting on a pad of butter. Which frog are you? Some people come to church. They said, now don't preach anything to offend me. I've worked hard all week long. My Bible said, fight the good fight of faith. Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. And he said, and Matthew strive to enter in. This is still a battle. Life is a battle. And it's to the person that represents the fellow that will paddle and kick and churn. And that fellow that said, that's all she wrote. I've had it. I'll quit teaching Sunday school. Just take me off the usher board. And I'm through. That's all. I've had it. I quit. I'm fed up. And that frog sinks and drowns. But to the church member that said, yes, I've got a difficulty. I've got a problem. But I'm going to keep on paddling. I'm going to keep on turning. I'm going to keep on fighting. I'm going to keep on kicking until I come up with a victory. Hallelujah. You take the Apostle Paul, everywhere he went in town, he didn't look for the best hotel. I imagine the first thing he did was go by the jail to see what it looked like because just as quick as he got to preaching, they threw him in jail. And every obstacle the Apostle Paul had became a new opportunity for him to win a soul. And every burden he had was turned into a new blessing. And every test he had was a fresh testimony. And every trial he converted into a new triumph in Jesus Christ. You give me just a few more minutes here. And I want to 
show you a man that resembles some of us. The Bible said Elias was a man. Now when you look at him who shut up the heavens, raised the dead, defied 450 prophets of Baal besides 400 more prophets of the groves, and he called fire down from heaven, and his prayers ended a drought. That fellow, Elijah, bears very little resemblance to any of us here tonight. But that same Elijah, fleeing from an angry woman, repining under a juniper tree, wishing that he were dead, feeling that his life work was a failure, reminds us of ourselves. But you know, human nature has always been the same. And when you can look at Elijah, after he'd been to the Mount of Inspiration, now he's under a juniper tree. There are several reasons why he was so discouraged. He said, I wish I were dead. First of all, he was exhausted physically. He had run 15 miles off that mountain in front of Ahab's chariot and beat him back to Jezreel. And then when he heard Jezebel say, I'll get you tomorrow about this time, he traveled 95 more miles into the wilderness. And he lay there under that juniper tree, physically exhausted. That's one reason for his discouragement. Another, and he was, another reason is that he was suffering from reaction. He'd been in high gear in the flights of spiritual ecstasy on the mountain when he called fire down from heaven. And you've been in high gear all this week, and I'll guarantee you the devil attacked hundreds of you next week. When you get back home, you better know how to deal with it. And he was suffering from disappointed hopes. He'd gotten on his knees and put his head between his knees and prayed for revival. Revival didn't come like he wanted it to come. He was suffering from a sense of failure. He said, I am no better than my father's. And he was suffering from inactivity. He went into a cave and the Lord said, What doest thou here? And that active prophet said, Nothing. That's the reason a lot of people today are discouraged. They're not doing anything in the church today. Many was lonely, another cause of his discouragement. He said, I, even I only, am left alone. In other words, nobody understands me. And lastly, he lost faith in everybody around him. He said, I'm the only one living right. Now these are the seven causes of discouragement in Elijah's life. Now there is a cure in this first king's story of Elijah. First of all, the first thing God did was use human and natural means to assist in curing spiritual ailments. He let him fall asleep and he fed him two times. Now when a fellow's physically exhausted, he needs to get some rest. One fellow said Jesus took four trips a year to the mountains to rest. That means a preacher ought to have four vacations a year. Well, that's somebody else's exegesis, but uh, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? But Elijah was resting under the juniper tree, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and fed him and even cooked his cakes for him and fed him and put him back to sleep again. The second thing that cured his discouragement was that God gave him a new revelation. He said, come into the cave, get away by yourself. And he sent by a wind, and he sent an earthquake, and he sent a fire, and he sent a still, small voice, and gave Elijah a new revelation. You see, Elijah was that hellfire and brimstone kind of a preacher.
And he felt that God only moved in the wind and the earthquake and the fire. But God gave him a new revelation. He said, I can move in a still, small voice. Hallelujah. You know, there's a lot of people think the only place you can get somebody saved is when a quartet's singing and the music's are playing and the bands are playing. Everybody's shouting. You play somebody through. You know what you ought to do? You ought to get somebody off in a car somewhere and lead them to Jesus Christ going to town. Or you ought to lead them to Christ on the square in town. You ought to lead them to Christ in their homes where there is no noise, no wind, no earthquake, no fire. And then the still, small voice of Jesus can save their soul. How do you know that's true, Brother Ross? Because there's a fellow who came to my church and took my General Assembly tape and he played it during the dinner hour to a young man and he was saved by the grace of God during the dinner hour listening to a portion of that sermon. And he brought him to church and told me about it. He got the Holy Ghost and joined my church. Both of them joined. I'll tell you, God wants to use Church of God members to win souls to Jesus Christ. And then after he refreshed him and gave him this new revelation... He said, there's some work for you to do. I want you to anoint Hazel, king of Syria. I want you to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. I want you to anoint Elisha to be priest in your, and prophet in your place. I want you to get to work. That's what will cure a lot of discouragement. Activity for a church member will drive a lot of discouragement away. The reason so many people are bored and discouraged, they're not doing anything in the church. There's just one time for a superintendent. There's just one teacher in some places. But you don't have to be a teacher or in a high place in the church. You can be an older worker. You can bring somebody to church. You can win a soul to Christ. There's work to do in the kingdom. If you believe it, say amen. amen. Then he corrected his arithmetic. He said, Elijah, you can't add. You don't know how to keep books in the first place. You can't add right. You added up this column and got zero. And I added it up and got 7,000. You said you were the only one living right. I've still got 7,000 that have never bowed their knee to Baal. You're 7,000 7, times better off than you thought you were. Hallelujah. I say tonight, saints of God, you're better off than you think you are tonight. The mandate of the church is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. God doesn't anoint churches to go. He anoints people to go. He doesn't anoint programs to go. He anoints people to go. He doesn't anoint organizations to go. He anoints people to go and carry out the mandate of the church. If you believe it, say amen. While they get the song ready to sing, we were born again by the Spirit. We were sanctified by the Spirit. We were baptized by the Spirit. We we're kept and sustained by the Spirit. We we're told to pray in the Spirit. We we're told to sing in the Spirit. We we're told to worship God in the Spirit. We're told to be led by the Spirit. We're told to walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit. And the Bible said we're going to be taken to heaven in the Spirit. And praise God, I think we ought to reach out to this dying world with another spirit inside of us. Thank God there will be faith in the midst of doubt and unbelief. Every head bowed and every eye closed.